Please turn with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians. We'll be looking in chapter 2, verses 17 to 21. Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 2, verses 17 to 21. And the title of my sermon this evening, loved ones, is Finding True Identity. Finding True Identity. And once you find your places in Galatians chapter 2, verses 17 to 21, please stand with me for the public reading of Scripture. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this evening. Finding True Identity, Galatians chapter 2, verses 17 to 21. This is the word of the Lord, church, starting here through what Paul writes to the Galatians in chapter 2, starting in verse 17. It says, But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I die to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord, church. Let's go before him one more time in prayer. Lord God, we thank you, Lord, for this day that you have given us, just the grace to gather in your name, Father, that's a gift from you. God, just to be able to sing praises again to you, Lord, and God, just to come to, to gather in your name, to hear the word preached, Father. We just pray that, God, your word will be declared here this evening. I pray for my church family here, my brothers and sisters. Fill them with your spirit, Lord, so that, God, they can be expository listeners, Lord. Not just being hearers who forget what your word says, but, God, to be doers who act upon the word of God this evening, Father. Whether it means um, building them up more like Jesus, encouraging them in their faith, correcting them where they need to be corrected necessary. Ultimately, Lord, I pray that my brothers and sisters will be transformed more into the image of King Jesus until you return to make all things do, Jesus. Um, and, and if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, God, we pray for their salvation. We pray that they'll hear the gospel preached, their consciences will be pricked, and that, God, it will just drive them to repentance, to their knees, to repent to you, Almighty God, and that, God, they'll just confess their faith in King Jesus, for he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And just lastly, I pray for myself, God. I'm a broken vessel. I am nothing but a mere mortal before you. And to proclaim your word, I cannot do it without you. So, Lord, I pray that please empower me by your spirit so that, God, I do not mess up your word in any way. But, Lord, as your mere humble servant, I am just your mouthpiece, proclaiming your word, exalting your Christ, preaching your gospel, Lord, that the point of today's sermon will be simply the point of the text that Paul wrote all those years ago to those churches in Galatia. God, we thank you for this time, and we lift up all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe see you at church. I want to start with a question. Who am I? Who am I? Many people in Western culture today struggle to answer that question because it is an internal struggle to determine really two things, one's identity and really one's purpose in life. As a result, the culture encourages people to simply look inside themselves as a solution. A recent study even shows that about 91% of Americans, and yes, you heard me right, 91% of Americans believe that the best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. And yet, determining your true authentic self by yourself never seems to satisfy. You can at least know that by just observing all the brokenness that we see in Western society today. And so, that begs the question then. What is the solution to find true identity and purpose in this life? 
And the good thing for us today, loved ones, is that the Apostle Paul gives us the answer here in Galatians chapter 2, verses 17 to 21. He teaches that your identity is found in Christ alone. Your identity is found in Christ alone. Why? Paul's going to present two reasons for us tonight, loved ones. First, false identity leads to self-condemnation. That's the first reason. And the second reason is that true identity leads to life in Christ. And so, without further ado, let me begin with the first reason tonight, loved ones, which again is this. False identity leads to self-condemnation. False identity leads to self-condemnation. And so look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 17, how Paul begins our text this evening. He writes, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. And so throughout the past couple passages in Galatians, Paul has been teaching and making it very clear that a person is saved by faith in Christ alone. He teaches that you're not made right before God by your good works. Instead, you were only declared right before God by your faith in him as Lord and Savior. Nonetheless, we have to remember who is Paul dealing with here in his letter to the Galatians. You have these Jewish Christians. They were troubling the non-Jewish Christians at the Galatian church with really a false gospel. Fake news. Consider what he says in Galatians 1, 6-7, earlier in his letter. Paul writes, I am astonished. Some translations say, I am shocked that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. In other words, these Jewish Christians were teaching that non-Jewish Christians need to be Jewish to be saved. They need to do good works of the law in order to find favor with God. Because only when they do that will they be accepted as God's people. And yet, as we've been working through Galatians, this law-centered gospel, it really contradicts the grace-filled gospel of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is why Paul is reminding the Galatians here that salvation, it is never by works. It's impossible. Instead, it's by grace, right? It's a gift. It's God's gift towards sinners like you and I who first repent of their sins and believe in him as Lord and Savior, the fundamentals of the gospel. However, these Jewish Christians, in light of all this, they begin to raise an objection here in our text tonight They raise an objection against Paul's statement that a person is saved by faith in Christ alone. And so let's start our time tonight by looking at that objection here in verse 17. Look at it again, loved ones. Paul writes, If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? That's the objection these Jewish Christians are raising. And the first thing I need to mention is that Paul is presenting this objection as a condition. A conditional statement. And for those who don't know what it is, this is simply an if-then statement. If A is true, and Paul is going to argue that it is true, then B will occur. That's how this objection is structured here. And so the first part of the condition says this. If, that's the first part, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. That's the first part. Let me break, let me break each part for you really quick. Well, first, in the Greek... 
It indicates here that while a person is a sinner, they seek to be justified in Christ. In other words, a person can only be declared right before God by faith in Christ alone. Because humanity, every single day, from the beginning, sins and falls short of God's glory. That's why no one is made right before God by doing good works. We need to believe in him by faith alone. And even as we go before him as sinners... We repent that, God, I have sinned against you. I have committed cosmic treason against the high creator God, and I cannot do anything about it. My good works are as filthy as dirty rags. All I can do is bow the knee, repent of my sins, and believe in your son, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And as Paul says earlier in Galatians 2.16, he says, clarifying that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, look again at verse 17 at the phrase, we too were found to be sinners. What does Paul mean by that? What does it mean that these Jewish Christians were raising this objection? Well, we need to understand something about the immediate context. Because the reason why Paul is bringing this up is because he's making it clear, and he's not denying the fact, that there is a distinction between Jews and another people group called Gentiles, non-Jews. Look at what he says earlier in Galatians 2.15. He says, we ourselves, that is, he's talking about himself, Paul is a Jew, and everyone who is in the early Christian church Jewish, he says that we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And the reason why he's making the distinction is because, again, these Jewish Christians said, like, hey, you Gentiles who are not Jewish ethically, you need to be like us. You need to be Jewish. And Paul is saying, like, no, by no means. You are only saved by your faith in Christ. Doesn't want to deny the distinction, but he has to acknowledge it to agree with his opponents so that he can then show them like, hey, does it matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile? You're saved by your faith in Christ. But what, what, what does distinguish the Jews and the Gentiles? Well, for one, the Jews, those were the people who received God's law. That is the Old Testament. Whereas the Gentiles, they didn't receive it. Were the Jews kept God's law or to the best of their ability because no one's perfect? The Gentiles went on sinning without it. They didn't know it existed. Where the Jews will be held accountable one day because they received God's law, the Gentiles will not because they never received it. And yet, don't hear me wrong. The Jews here do not get to go into heaven for merely having God's promises in the Old Testament. They, alongside the Gentiles, every people group, Everyone is only saved by their faith in the personal work of Christ because Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. And that is really the point of the objection in verse 17. You might be like, what do you mean, John? These Jewish Christians, the reason why they're bringing up this objection, because, you know, by being justified in Christ alone, they affirm that. But they are worried that by affirming this doctrine, that they are being lowered to the status of Gentile sinners. What do I mean by that? Well, look at the second part of this condition in verse 17, the, the, the then part, right? He says, is Christ then a servant of sin? In other words, is Christ a promoter of sin because Jews, Jewish Christians who believe in faith by Jesus are now sinners like the Gentiles? And what I mean by that, loved ones, is that ancient Jews, they know that they are God's people according to his promises. The promises that he made in the Old Testament that, hey, I have chosen you to be my people, not because there's anything special in you, but because of my grace, I have chosen you. The Jews realize that. And they even realize that they are guilty of breaking his law. That's why they need his grace like anyone else. And yet, 
these ancient Jews, they also believe that it is keeping God's law that distinguishes them as his people. And so where they affirm God's grace and making them his people, it is by keeping his law that affirms, like, yes, we are the people of God. He has called us according to his gracious promises. And in order to continue in that, we do keep the law to authenticate these promises. And so these Jewish Christians, as I said in Galatia, they agree with Paul. They agree that, yes, we are saved in Christ alone. Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, not only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. And yet, the law does not make a person right before God, as Paul has been defending. And so here's the question then. Because of that, should they abandon God's law altogether? And if so, would that not make Christ a promoter of sin by disregarding God's law like Gentile unbelievers who never received it? That's the objection. That's what these Jewish Christians were asking Paul. And if you look at the end of verse 17, we see Paul's response. He says, certainly not. And in some translations, absolutely not. And if you're more old school, um, sometimes in the King James Version, it would actually put it this way. God forbid. Why? Because this is actually this phrase in the Greek, meganoito, this is actually the strongest way to say no in the Greek. And so take, for example, the King James Version, God forbid. You would never really translate it that way um, from Greek to English, but it just expresses really the strong force of the negation here. Whatever the Jewish Christians are objecting, Paul's like, nope, God forbid, absolutely not, may it never be. One of my favorite um, takes on this phrase is by Pastor John MacArthur. He actually interprets the phrase in this way. No, 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 and a million times, no. Get, get the point? Therefore, let me ask you some questions real quick to kind of summarize what we've reviewed so far. Is a Jew or Gentile saved by works? Paul would say, God forbid. They are saved by faith in Christ alone. That's the gospel. And yet, because of that, are they to abandon God's law altogether, making Christ a promoter of sin? And you know what Paul would say? No, 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 and a million times. No, by no means. And yet, how does Paul defend his response to this objection? And we see he gives two reasons in verses 18 to 20. And so, loved ones, look at Galatians 2.18 at that first reason. Paul says here, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Some translations say a lawbreaker. And so first, Paul's presenting this first reason as another conditional statement. If this, then that. First, look at what Paul says. He says, I rebuild what I tore down. And what he has in mind there is works of the law, like circumcision, keeping the feasts and stuff like that. And the reason why Paul says he tore it down, that he no longer finds circumcision, not to say that he's not circumcised, doesn't mean that he doesn't keep the Jewish feasts, doesn't mean he doesn't keep the law, but the reason why he tears it down, because he does not depend upon these works for his salvation to be justified, to be declared right before God. Instead, it's his faith in Jesus. It's his faith in the Messiah that saves him, that makes him right before God. And also, i got to mention that he's assuming the first part of this condition to be true for the sake of argument. Why? Because if Paul was to return to the law, say if Paul's like, all right, let's, let's, let's pretend here really quick. Say if I was to go back to the law, to say that, you know, I believe in Christ by faith, but you know, I'm just going to go back to the law and try to be a good person, try to save myself through my obedience of the law. You know what he says then? 
then I would prove myself to be a transgressor. If I was to do that myself, I would be a lawbreaker. In other words, if Paul destroys his living hope in Christ through the gospel to then go back to rebuilding good works of the law, he's a transgressor. He's a lawbreaker. And I know that seems paradoxical, but think about this with me. If he were, imagine if he, were, he returns to the law. He is returning to something that can never save him. The law of God, yes, is good. Why? Because the one who gave the law, the lawgiver, he is good. He is the ultimate standard of goodness. And although that's what it teaches us about who God is, it also teaches us something else. Something more negative, right? It teaches us how holy God is because he is the creator. But in contrast, it teaches us how wicked and sinful people are. Are. And if you hesitate towards that, just look at the history of Israel, particularly Judges. You will see it very clearly that we are not good people. And, and if you don't believe, if you think it's only limited to Israel, pick up an old history book. You see all the wars, all the pain. Turn on the news. You see all the horrible things that people do one another because we're not inherently good. We are inherently evil. And the law of God, God's law, shows us, shows us just that. And as a result, if Paul is to go back to the law for salvation... He says, I would be a lawbreaker because I am condemning myself already to a law that condemns me because I am already sinful. I am already wicked. I can say I can be saved by the law, but the law was never meant to do that. It is actually impossible to keep the law as, in, in the sense for salvation. Consider what Paul says later on in Galatians in chapter 3, verses 10 to 11. He says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, and he quotes from Deuteronomy 27, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in what? The book of the law, God's law, and do them. And Paul brings it up because like, it's not that no one can keep the law perfectly. I'm bringing it up because no one can keep it perfectly. We all know that, right? Experientially, we all know that. And this is why he says in verse 11, Now it is evident that no one can be justified. No one can be declared right before God by the law for, and he quotes from Habakkuk 2, for famously, the righteous shall live by faith. doesn't say that they shall live by works of the law, right? No, he says the righteous, those who want to be declared right before God, they shall live by their faith in him. The law of God was never meant to bring salvation. It was meant to show how sinful humanity really is. And now, hypothetically, if I, if I may bring this up, it is hypothetically possible to find salvation through the law, but there's a catch. The standard is perfection, right? 100%. Not 90%. Not 99.9999%. 100%. Because since God is perfect... You must be perfect. And yet the law shows you that it is impossible for anyone to keep the law perfectly. And just to give a, an illustration to help out with this, the British writer C.S. Lewis, he actually is very helpful in describing this universal moral law or God's law. He, he describes it as that human beings all over the earth, all various different types and cultures, they have a curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Yet... They do not, in fact, behave that way. And that's interesting, because based on Lewis's observation, which is, again, affirmed by the Torah, by God's law, every single human being and their conscience, we inherently know that there is a right and a wrong. And, and, and as I kind of alluded to earlier, everything that we know that is good and right in the universe is because it comes from the ultimate lawgiver, God, who is the ultimate standard of goodness, because he is goodness in himself. 
and everything evil, everything wicked in the world is because it contradicts the ultimate standard in the world that is God contradicting who God is in himself in his goodness. And what that tells us is that we as humans, we realize that and we can't deny it. But the thing that's crazy is that we know that no one can behave the way that we ought. We know that we should behave in a certain way, but because of our sin nature, we know that we can't. Everyone knows that. And if they, and if they say not, then they're lying to you. They're lying. We all know that as a fact. And, and because of that, that's why each and every one of us loved ones, any unbelievers here, that's why every single human being needs the perfect law keeper. It's not about trying to keep the law ourselves. We can't. Rather, you need the perfect lawkeeper, the Messiah Jesus, to save you from your sins. Because he alone has life in himself. He alone can bring you from death to sin to life in him. Because again, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he alone is the one you ought to place your identity in for eternal life. And it's just reflecting here, here in Galatians 2.18 that I cannot help but see the parallel of what Paul says in Galatians 2.18 and even to just some of the struggles that we see in our culture. Because look at Paul again in 2.18. He is refusing to build up his faith upon good works of the law because it doesn't bring salvation. And of course, obeying God's commandments, it shows that a person loves God. And loving God shows that a person obeys God. And yet for Paul to place his identity in the law for God's approval not only misses the point of the law, but condemns himself by the law. That is the problem with the Jewish Christians in Paul's day. They believe that obeying the law is not only what they ought to do, but who they really are. And they're not wrong here in a sense, because they believe that they're, because their Jewishness... They believe their Jewishness is the core essence of their identity. And by them, because they have been called by God's promises and to affirm that calling, they have to obey the law. They're not wrong in thinking that. But the thing that Paul is calling out that they're wrong in is that they believe that their Jewishness, by keeping the law, that is what who they ultimately, ultimately who they are. And Paul is saying that that's not correct. Partially, but that's not fully correct. Because when they think that way, they think that so much so that it's actually their good works that save them. That's Paul's problem. And I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that a Jew cannot be a Jew and a Gentile cannot be a Gentile. The beauty of the gospel is that it transcends all human cultures. You can be from Africa, from Asia, believe in Christ Jesus, still be who you are ethnically, and be united from people from all the nations because you believe and are united by your faith in Christ, Savior, the Messiah. And yet... Despite that beautiful reality of the gospel, to place your identity in something besides God himself, whom we were made to worship, who we were, whose image we were created in, that will bring eternal condemnation. If you place your identity in anything else but God, you will ultimately condemn yourself. Why? Because you have ultimately made an idol. You are making a God in your own image rather than submitting yourself to the image that you were made in. And instead of placing your identity that, you know, I am made for God. Not only am I saved by faith in him, but I am made for God. I am made to worship him. I am made to enjoy him and all that I've been created to do, whether it be hobbies, you know, my, my work, my talents, all these things. I was made for God. And I'm supposed to place my identity in him, not because it's, it's built on my purpose. I am an image bearer of God. I have inherent value. I I am a child of the living God because of my faith in him. And yet, when you place your identity in anything else but that reality, it's an idol. It's sin. And as Paul says in Romans, the wages of sin 
is eternal death. That is Paul's problem with the Jewish Christians here in Galatia. And yet that even parallels to what we see in the culture today. Because what are many people doing today? They are tearing down their God-given identity to then build it up, to build up their own identity. To build up their own identity themselves. Western culture, particularly in our country, and even in, like, in England and Eastern European countries, they teach you all the time that you can only find your identity or your true authentic self by looking inside yourself. Only then can you express who you really are on the inside. Whether it be your dreams, desires, or deepest longings in life, you are, again, to look inside, to look to yourself, to then live according to it on the outside. Only then will you have meaning and purpose in your life. That's what our culture teaches. And yet the problem with that is, as I said earlier, you were never made to place your identity in anything within this creation, ultimately. They are merely false identities, offering false hopes and dreams, leaving you to be self-condemned in hell because you think this is going to be what's going to give you life, peace, and joy. But ultimately, you realize, like, man, I'm placing my identity in an idol and a thing that's passing and fading away. And, if you re- and, 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 and sooner or later, you're going to realize it's too late. And you'll be like, man, I've, I'm, I'm going to hell because I've sinned against God. And that is the delusion our culture um, is grasping onto. And that is the danger that we have to be aware of, loved ones. Because, again, the goodness of Jesus is that he came to restore your identity. He came to restore your broken identity because of sin in himself. Since he is the God-man, the mediator between God and man, the one mediator, he comes to restore your shattered identity in the one you were meant to live. You were meant to live for the triune creator God. Why? Because that's the big question. So what? Why should I place my identity in Christ? Because he is the God who is. He's not only the creator, he is. He is God. He is the source of all things. Everything is contingent upon him for existence, including us, because we were made in his image by him to live and serve him. Truly, he's the God who is there, and he is not silent. He was the one that we're made to live for, and it's only when you live, loved ones, it's only when you live for God that you're able to put off your false identity, repent of your false idols, put them aside if you place them in the things of this world, and rather rest in that true identity, rest in the one that we were made to experience, and that is only found in God. And so it's with that in mind, loved ones, that i got to ask a couple questions before we move on. For all of us, as a reminder, do you find your identity in God, or do you place it in something else? And if you do place it in something else, then I just have to ask a question. How's it going for you? How is that really working out for you, if you know better or not? Whether it's our careers, our spouses, families, friends, it could be hobbies, it could be your time, it could be your comfort, that's something that we've got to be aware of, loved ones, your pleasure, maybe your education, your pride, or whatever else you may turn to instead of Christ. How is that really going for you? Because if, because if we're not careful, when we, when, because if we don't rest in God for, for our full identity, then you will start to see that there's brokenness. There's, there's nothing here to it. There, it, it. This leads to emptiness. And if we're not careful, loved ones, even for us, such brokenness may harden our hearts by the deceitfulness of sin, and it can lead us to self-condemnation and hell forever. Not saying that we can lose our salvation, but if we're not careful, if we go with the spirit of the age of putting our identity in whoever we want to be and not submitting it to Christ, then we might find ourselves to not be Christians. We might find ourselves to be deceived. And so we've got to be aware. we always got to be aware 
As Paul says about this reality in Galatians 4, 9 to 10, a little later in his letter, he says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to become once more. And again, contextually, he's referring to the law. Why are you going back to the law? You are not saved by the law. You're ultimately, you don't even find your identity in the law. Rather, you are saved by Christ. He is the one that you're meant to live for. He is the one that you're created to live for. And so, loved ones, if there is any idols, and it's not that if, I know there's idols, there's idols in my life, because as John Calvin says, our hearts are idol-making factors. They're coming all the time. Yeah, we may not worship little, little statues, but we can make an idol of everything. Like I said earlier, that list could be family members, it could be education, work, things that are good, but we can twist those good things to serve our own selfish desires. And so whatever you place your identity in, whatever you place your trust in besides God, you've got to first repent. First, take responsibility and repent to God through prayer. One of the most precious promises in all Scripture is 1 John 1, 8-9. But first, he gives a warning. If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself, and the truth is not in you. And so we can say that, oh, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm a good person. John's like, nope, we're all sinners, so don't lie to yourself, because if you do, that's actually a sign that you're probably not a Christian. And, I, and I'm saying it a lot more softer. John's like, nope, you're not a Christian, so I'm trying to give you the benefit of the doubt. But nonetheless, that's the warning. But then he says in verse 9, if you confess your sins, he that is God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins, and to cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness. And how that's constructed in the Greek is that if you truly take responsibility for your sins, like, God, I have sinned against you. Forgive me for placing my identity in all these different things. Forgive me for placing my trust in all these false idols and not you alone. God, forgive me. And you know what that scripture teaches us? That God is faithful. It's not that he'll think about it. It's like, you know, give me five business days and I'll come back to you. No, he is faithful. He is just to not only forgive you by his forgiving grace, but also to transform you in his transforming grace to help you become more like Jesus Christ. He forgives you the sin because of Christ Jesus, but yet he promises to also to become more like Jesus Christ, to cleanse you, to sanctify you, so that the sin does not become a stumbling block to your loved one, but, but yet to overcome it by grace so that you can live a life, the life that you're meant to live for in Christ Jesus. So do that first. Repent of your idols, and, and after that, pray to God that he, he, that he will help you each and every single day not to place your identity or trust in anything else but him. Because only when we depend upon God fully each and every single day in that way will we then define ourselves fleeing from idolatry, faster than, faster than before. And it's only when we do that that, we'll, that you will be able to keep yourselves from idols in general. Because only then will you be able to live how you were made to live to the glory of God by enjoying his good things for the sake of his name forever. Such a reality, loved ones. These things prepare you, prepares all of us, for really the second and final reason tonight of Paul's argument here in Galatians chapter 2. And so, this is the second reason why we're here tonight. Where the first reason was that false identity leads to self-condemnation. The second reason is that true identity leads to life in Christ. True identity leads to life in Christ. And so look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 19, loved ones. Paul writes, For through the law I die to the law so that I might live to God. And so Paul, as he said before, he is not placing his identity. He is not trusting in his good works anymore because it only leads to self-condemnation to the law. It's sin. He's not going to do that. 
Instead, he says that he dies to the law through the law. What does he mean there? In other words, when he says that he dies to the law, what he's getting at is that he no longer depends upon the law for his salvation. He, does, he no longer places his identity in the law anymore. Why? Because again, the law shows him how sinful he is, and it is impossible for him to save himself in this manner. And so as Paul says at the end of this passage, and at the end of chapter 2, verse 19, how can Paul live? How can Paul live to God as he says here? Well, he can only do so by killing his trust in the law for salvation. And it's really the law itself that tells him that he has to do this. Because one, it tells him that, hey, you can't save yourself, right? So don't think that you can. And not only that, it's the same law that tells us that there is going to be one day a promise. There's going to be a man, the Messiah, fulfilled in the personal work of Jesus, who's going to come and fulfill the law so that if you believe in him by faith alone, you will be saved. And so again, Paul dies to the law through the law so that he might live to God. And yet that begs the question, who is he to trust ultimately for salvation? Who is he to trust to not only give identity and purpose in life, but the life he was created to live? Well, he gives his reason in the next verse here in Galatians 2.20. And it's perhaps one of my favorite verses in all scripture. It's a rich passage, but let me read it to you really quick. Here's his reason of how he has died to the law, through the law, so that he might live to God. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Beautiful passage. So much here. And the crazy thing about this verse is that it not only points to the passage's main point here in Galatians 2, but it really points to really the heart of Paul's message here to the Galatians. And not only that, but it also captures really the essence of not only what does it look like to find true identity, but what does it really mean to live the good life? In other words, what does it mean to live the Christian life? Once you believe in Jesus by faith alone, how do you then live in the Christian life? How do you live for Jesus? And it, be, and it begins with what Paul says at the beginning of verse 20. And so look at your Bibles, loved ones, at that, at that first sentence, that first phrase in verse 20. This is huge. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And focus on that word, have been crucified. It's actually a verb. It's an action word. And I'm going I'm to share this detail with you. In the Greek, it's a perfect tense verb. And the only reason why I share that detail with you is because it indicates really the essence of the Christian life. What Paul is getting at here in verse 20 and our passage tonight, really, in this whole letter to the Galatians. And so what is a perfect tense verb? What does have been crucified mean? Well, a perfect tense verb, it communicates something of something that happened in the past, but has continuous effects in the present and even sometimes in the future. A perfect tense verb communicates the idea of something that happened in the past with continuing effects in the present. And so keeping that in mind, right, as it regards to having been crucified, what happened to Paul in the past? Well, he's been crucified with Christ. But what does that mean? Well, it's not to say that he was literally crucified next to Jesus on the cross, that you got Jesus and you got the, the two robbers and you got Paul chilling in the corner, right? That's, all, that's, not, that's not what he's getting at, right? You don't read that in the Passion narratives. Instead, when Paul says that he is crucified with Christ, he is referring to his sins. He is referring to his old life. He is referring to his old identity in the law. Because remember, 
he was a zealous um, Jude, uh, he was zealous in Judaism. He was faithful to the law. He was a, a, a Jew of Jews, the Pharisees of Pharisees, the tribe of Benjamin, right? And yet, when he says, I am crucified with Christ, I put my old life upon the cross. My old life is so dead as if I nailed it to the cross. That is what Paul is getting at. At least that's what happened in the past. His, his sins, his past life, his old life, it is crucified next to, on the cross because Christ died for my sins. He died for my old man so that I no longer live in that way. But now that I'm born again, now that I'm a new creation in Christ, now I'm able to live now in the present because of that past reality to live the life that I meant to live, to live right now in, in, in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Paul no longer lives for himself. As, as the Lord of his life. He is a new creature living under the sovereign lordship of King Jesus. And what does that look like? We'll look at the next sentence in verse 20, where Paul says this, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now think about that for a moment. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so Paul was saying is that I am no longer living. Not to say that he died. His old man did, right? Yet, he is saying that I myself, I am no longer living in such a way that my desires are king of my life. I'm, I am the king of my life. I'm the Lord of my life. I'm, whatever I want goes. I'm going to live how I want to live. But yet, that's what, but because he's been crucified with Christ, because he believes in Jesus by faith alone, it is no longer he who lives anymore because he's not the Lord of his life anymore. Instead, it is Christ. It is Jesus who lives in Paul. He lives in Paul in such a way that when Paul lives, what he does his day-to-day things now, Christ is exemplified in the way he now lives and how he speaks and how he thinks and how he teaches and how he prays and all that he does, truly he can do all things to God's glory because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And that is not because he lives, but because Christ lives in Paul now. He no longer depends upon himself to maintain his identity. He no longer works to build up his self-esteem so that he'd be made right with God by the law. Rather, he doesn't even care what other people think. He doesn't care what he himself thinks. Instead, it is the gospel of Christ that transformed his identity to stop living for self and now to live for God, to live for Christ. And because of that beautiful reality, look at what he says at the end of verse 20. He says, and the life I now live, this life that I live in Christ, I live in the flesh by faith, by faith in the Son of God. And when Paul says the flesh, it's, it's not a negative term. He's just referring to the physical body that he currently dwells right now. That's why some translations say that, you know, the life that he lives in the body. He's just talking about, like, as I'm here on this earth, when he wrote it 2,000 years ago, I am living my life now for King Jesus. As he says in his other letters, right, for to me to live as Christ and all that I do, And even if I die, that's gain, because again, I get to be with Jesus. Again, Paul was not thinking this way before he got saved, but because of the Christ event, because he had that personal experience, he was saved by the gospel, this is is how now he lives. He lives in Christ by his faith. And notice that word, by faith. It's not by works of the law. He was not able to access this beautiful gift of salvation in Christ Jesus. How How was he able to access it? By faith. By believing in the person and work of King Jesus, that he is who he says he was, that the promises of the Old Testament of a coming Messiah who's going to come and defeat sin and death once and for all and redeem his people back to God, those promises were fulfilled in the personal work of Jesus. And Paul's like, I see the connection. I believe in Jesus. He is the resurrected Lord, not because I met him personally, but because this is 
authenticated in the word of God itself. And so Paul lives now in Christ only because of his faith in Jesus. And again, going back to that verb earlier in verse 20, because he has been crucified with Christ, none of this will be possible unless first God called Paul, right? Which we see earlier in Galatians that he does, but unless that God called him and Paul's like, I believe in Christ Jesus by faith alone. And because of that past event, now actively, continuously, he is able to live in Christ Jesus, whom he calls the Son of God, because Jesus is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity, because our God is not just a Unitarian God. He is one in his essence, but yet the scriptures say that he is a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, which is Jesus, he is indeed God in the flesh. He's fully God, fully man, and it's this God, this one mediator between God and man, being able to, having Paul to be able to, to believe in him is this God that Jesus finds faith in. And because of that, he calls him the Son of God. But also notice how he describes the Son of God. How he describes Jesus here at the end of verse 20. He says that it's this, it's, it's this Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. Those are the two attributes that Paul wants to describe here about Jesus. The, 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 the Son of God who loves and gives his life for sinners. Think about that with me, loved ones. For those who have tasted the goodness of the gospel, the reason why we're able to taste that grace, that gift, is because Christ, God out of his grace, was willing to send his son out of his love for us. Not that we are worthy of it, but as Paul says in his letter to the Romans, for God chose his love for us, that while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, while we were still lawbreakers, he has sent his son to die for us. The innocent for the guilty to die as our substitute so that we won't die to sin, but because God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, right? That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's Jesus. That's the son of God. He loves us and he gave himself for us. And that is what we cherish as as Christians saved by the gospel. And yet, even by me mentioning that, there is one thing I do want to mention, however, is that even when I mention the goodness of the gospel, there is a significant, a significant critique that many of our neighbors will make against this, however, because we do live in a secular culture. We do live in a growing post-Christian culture here in America. And because of that, many of our neighbors will say, John, I hear you talk about the gospel, and my biggest problem is that it really limits you of how you, of how you should believe. Maybe how you feel, how you do, how you should fundamentally live. And not only does it limit you to freely choose how you want to live, but it enables you to be your true, authentic self whatever that means, right? I to the beholder. And not only that, but the freedom to determine how you will live your life, that's what people in our culture have a problem with. Not only with the gospel, but just with God in general. Because they don't want no one to tell them how they have to live. The cultural creed is, follow your heart. That captures the essence of this reality. But yet the only problem to that is that when you start to think that way, to start to live according to your truth, you remove your own right for moral outrage. And what I mean by that is that if you want to say that you are going to be your own arbiter of truth, all right, let's go with that. Say if you believe murder is wrong, but I believe murder is right, what's the standard? Who's going to arbitrate between the two, right? You think murder is wrong because that's how you feel on the inside, but I feel on the inside that murder is right. 
And again, that's a very extreme case, but again, it shows the contradiction that, yes, if you want to live for your own personal freedom, go right ahead, do your thing, but you remove your right for moral outrage. And, and, and it really shows the inconsistency of our neighbors, unfortunately. I'm not saying this to be prideful, I'm saying this to be truthful, and that we have to be patient and loving to our neighbors as we preach to them the gospel. The gospel that we're studying right now, loved ones, this is how we ought to share it with those and our, and to our unsaved neighbors. That if they're going to think that way, all right, you can, you can live according to your own truth, but just know that you don't have a standard. God is the standard. And apart from God, you can't not know anything at all. And even besides that, right, people talk about freedom all the time, but really, we're all in a spiritual straitjacket. What do I mean by that? Well, we're all enslaved to something, do we not? We all serve something, and ultimately, as the Bible says it, we serve sin. We will either serve God if we're Christians, or you're going to serve sin, whatever you're enslaved to. And, and, and part of the goodness of the gospel is that only Christ can set the sinner free from death to life in him. As Jesus says in John 8, 34 to 36, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so we're all slaves to someone, right? Whether it be to Christ, which is the awesome slave master, actually frees us up to live how we were originally made to live, or... You can choose to live for your sin, but just know that you're enslaved to it, and it's ultimately going to condemn you to hell because of it, which is not worth it at all. And so because of that, you're either going to serve your sin, you can, you're going to get condemned to hell, or you can believe in Jesus. And this is really the heart of the gospel, that although God made everything originally good, we as, we as humans, our first parents, Adam and Eve, what did they do? They didn't want to bow the knee to God, they wanted to be God's themselves. They didn't want to embrace their identity as image bearers living for God. They redefined their own identity and ate from that fruit that they weren't supposed to in the Garden of Eden, and then everything else was history. Sin, death, brokenness came into the world, and we experience it on a day-to-day basis. And because of that, because of the sin that was brought into the world, we experience that brokenness. And even if an unbeliever doesn't want to immediately acknowledge this reality, they do experience that brokenness which again shows that sin exists. And the reason why they know that exists because they try to do all that they can to alleviate that brokenness. Like I said, maybe placing their identity in drugs, alcohol, substances to kind of like numb it out. Maybe like, oh, maybe if I get a good education, I get a good job, you know, find a good spouse, I can live, I can live the good life. See how long that goes. Ultimately, it's going to leave you feeling empty. It's going to leave you feeling broken. And at the end, you're going to be, you're just condemning yourself to God's eternal judgment because when we sin against God, we commit cosmic treason against him because he's an eternal being, right? And when we sin against him, the only justifiable consequence is an eternal punishment, eternal punishment and death and hell. That's the bad news of this reality. And yet there's good news. And we, and we have tasted this reality, loved ones, have we not? Because the goodness of the gospel is that, again, God so loved the world, that he sent his eternally begotten son, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, added humanity to himself 2,000 years ago to live a perfect life. And not only did he live a perfect life, but he ultimately laid down his life on the cross so that all who would believe in him as the Son of God, that he has come to take away the sins of the world, that if you believe in him by faith and repent of your sins and follow him, scriptures say you will be saved, right? You will be saved. And how that works, right, is that Christ dies in our place, and if you believe in him by faith, all your sins, think of a bank account exchange, your sins are placed into Christ's account, he pays your debt in full, and that's why he says on the cross that is finished, your death before God is finished. Not because you, anything that you have done, 
but because of what Christ has done in your place, and you're only able to access that gift by faith. And the craziest thing is, the craziest thing is, is that during that exchange, Christ gets your sins. Not that he is sin, right? But he pays it in full, but he gives you his righteousness as a gift. So that when the Father looks at you, he says, you are declared right before me. Again, not because of what you have done, but because of what King Jesus did on the cross. And we know that's true, because King Jesus rose again three days later from the grave. And that's why the gospel is good news. Not because he saves us from our sins, but because it's during that moment when you believe in Jesus and live for him, he redefines your whole life. You are a born-again creature. You are born again. You no longer live according to your old man or your own sinful identity. Rather, you have a redefined identity, really the identity that you were always made for, restored back to Christ. So now you can live for him. You can live for God. And all that you do, whether you work, whether how you raise up your families, your hobbies, you know, what you do in your days off, now you're able to live the life that you're made to live for, to live for the glory of God as you enjoy him forever because it's no longer your purpose or what you do in life that marks you. Rather, it's your faith in Jesus who defines who you are. And as Paul says beautifully in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, because of this reality, he says here that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, and so that you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God, children of the living God. That is who we are in Christ Jesus by our faith in him. That's the goodness of the gospel. So if there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus, who has not bowed the knee, have repented and professed your faith in him, I exhort you, do not walk out of here still in your sins because you know that if you do, you're just self-condemning yourself. And you know that, you know, that, that, that the power of the gospel has been revealed clearly in scripture. Don't deny this gift. Don't deny who Christ is. Rather, believe, repent, and follow him. Because it's only through him that you can live according to how you're originally made to live. And if you don't, you can live your life how you want. But just know that there'll be a day that you still will meet Jesus. And he won't be your savior on that day because you didn't believe in him. But instead, he will be your judge. And that will not be a great day. And so, with all that in mind, loved ones, Paul then summarizes everything he's been saying. Everything that he's been talking about the gospel, saved by faith in Christ alone. Even the objection that he's been raising up. He summarizes everything very quickly in this final verse here in Galatians 2.21. So let's finish our time together by looking at this verse, loved ones. Paul closes his argument by saying, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no person. So this is a summary statement from everything that he's been saying starting all the way back to verse 15. And since Paul teaches that a person can only be saved by faith in Christ alone, he is not setting aside God's grace. And contextually, when the Jews would have heard that, they would have been thinking about the grace of God giving the law to his people. And the reason why Paul is saying that, hey guys, I'm not denying the grace of God. Although I'm saying that you're saved by grace alone, not by works of the law, I'm not denying the law of God. And what Paul is doing there, he's, he's, he's rebuking two things. He is not saying that because you believe in Jesus, now you can live it up and live whoever you want. He's not uplifting antinomianism. He is not saying that, oh, you believe in Jesus? Cool, as long as you believe in him, you can love whoever you want, right? That's cheap grace. He is not affirming that, right? He is says, like, no, no, no. If you truly believe in Jesus and have been paying attention to what I've been saying, your life is going to look different. You're no longer going to live how you want to live, but you're going to live in a life that glorifies Christ. That, like, what does it look like for Christ to live in you? That is how you're going to live. And so he is not affirming that, but yet at the same time, he's denying legalism. You're not saved by your good works. Again, you're saved by faith in Christ. And look at that final reason, just to kind of close everything off. 
to, to go against that. Because at the end of the day, no one is made right before God but good works. And even if it was possible, if that was possible, what does he say at the very end? He says, then Christ died for no purpose. If you were really saved by your good works, then Christ's death was in vain. Well, we know that's not true because the whole reason why Christ came in the first place is because we couldn't save ourselves. We needed him to die in our place so that we would have eternal life in him. And so the fact that Christ died shows that a person is only declared right before God by faith. And once a person is declared right with God, they are now able to love God through their good works, especially as they show it towards their neighbor on a day-to-day basis. Because only when we're able to do that, loved ones, in Christ, will we, will we be able to showcase to the world that Christ truly lives in us. And so with all that in mind, just final questions I want to throw at you, loved ones. Does Christ live in you? Does Christ live in you? Do you live your life in Christ by faith? Do you live your life in such a way that God, through Christ, is glorified in you? That the people around you, yes, you're not perfect, none of us are, but they know like, you know what? That person is different because they believe in Jesus. Would your coworkers be able to say that about you? Your families, your friends. And, and, and whether you know or not, this day forward, live in such a way that Christ will be glorified in you. And if I may give a final warning, based on what Jesus says about this application point, in Luke 9, 23 to 24, this is what Jesus says. If anyone wants to come after me or be my disciples, let him first deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And so if we are truly his disciples, loved ones, allow us to always deny ourselves when it comes to our sinful passions. And in, and, and in exchange, help us, allow us to take up our crosses daily. And again, that was a symbol for death during this time in first century Israel. Um, to us, it's, it's a symbol of hope, but back then it was a symbol of death. Are we willing to go all the way for Jesus, no matter the cost, no matter the cost of discipleship? That is what Christ calls us to. And he says, after that, then follow me. It is not a confession of faith that we make the moment we first believe. This is, a, this is something that we do each and every single day. And so as you, as you live your lives here on this earth, however long God has you here for, live for the glory of God. Live as if Christ lives in you. Live in such a way that Christ is made manifest in you. Because only then will we be able to live the life that we were originally made to live, to showcase Christ, to, to live in Christ Jesus, and to help people understand the same beautiful reality as well. And so if I may close, I want to ask this final question, the one that I started off earlier. Who am I? Who are we? I think Paul answers that question well. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That is who we are as followers of King Jesus. That is where you can find your true identity. And I just pray that, loved ones, as we go, as you go about your weeks, you know, passing up Bible tracts, and as you go about sharing your faith, love your neighbor. Even those who are really confused about their identity, you know, the transgender movement, the LGBTQ movement, don't treat them as your enemies because they're not. They're just victims of the enemies. And so we're called to love them by telling them the truth that, hey, you're wrong in placing your identity in these different things because you can only find your identity in Christ Jesus. And so allow us, loved ones, to, find our, to, 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 to never forget that our identity is in Christ, allowing us to live for him, and, and doing so in such a way that we're showing others around us that, hey, you can only truly find your identity in Christ Jesus as well. And so let's pray, and then we'll prepare for the Lord's Supper. Lord God, we thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, for the grace of the gospel that we have been saved by, 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 your, by our faith in you, King Jesus. I am so thankful, Lord, that, God, we are your children, 
that because of our faith in you, we have now identified that we are your followers, that we are your children, that we are now been saved by our sins. And I just pray that my brothers and sisters will never forget that, Lord. No matter how crazy this world may get, no matter how difficult life may seem, God, one thing that will never change is their status before you. If they truly believe in you, if they truly place their faith, repent of their sins, and follow you, then because we are justified in you, because we are declared right before you because of our faith in you, that can never change. That can be never taken away. And that is where we find our ultimate assurance and hope so that we can keep living a life all for your glory, God, to live in such a way that will glorify Christ, you know, loving you, loving our neighbors, showing Christ like compassion so that, God, when people see us, they see Christ. And so, Lord, I thank you for this reality, and I just pray that you just be with us right now as we reflect upon these precious truths as we partake of the Lord's Supper shortly. And so, Lord, we thank you for this time. We lift all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.